I'm Lindsay Valenti. And I'm Madison Stengel. And we're the hosts of Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny... Hey man, he's a nice guy. And they're like, no, he's disgusting. He has hooves. Strange. There are EVPs of spirits saying, get out in a room where patients committed suicide. And obscure crimes of yesteryear. Here, Justin. Here's your first phallic amulet. Join us Wednesdays, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. Podcast, a podcast where we chat true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you a distraction from everyday life. I'm Alex. And Christy. And this week we are back talking true crime and it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. So this is probably going to be a very heavy episode, but it's going to be a very important episode. So trigger warning. Yes, I'll, I'll get into like the specific trigger warnings in a bit. But before we dive into that, Christy, can you tell me what your need for a distraction is? My need for a distraction is work is changing again. Again. Because we're in the third wave. Woo! And, yeah, career-wise, it potentially might be changing again. Because I get keep one position, apparently. I need to keep <laughs> jumping around. Um, but yeah, like we're in the third wave. Everything like medical-wise is ramping down again because we're ramping up taking patients from the city. Yeah. And that's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I would say my need for distraction is I've been feeling, like, nauseous lately. Not COVID. Not COVID and not pregnancy before anyone jumps to that conclusion, but I think I might have a food allergy or something or other. Something's going on, so I need to make a doctor's, another doctor's appointment, which is always fun, mm-hmm. especially amidst, amidst the pandemic, the panorama. So that's great, fine and dandy. Also, I just want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. So shout out to Tom and shout out to Bailey. Thank you so much for supporting Weird Distractions on Patreon. If you want want to get a shout out like Tom and Bailey, you can find us on patreon.com or at Weird Distractions Podcast. There's a lot of great opportunities there. There's two tiers. Check it out. Won't bore you with the details, but all the goodies. All the goodies. Without further ado, I think it's time for us to talk about this. This case. Yeah. So when I was telling Christy about this episode, I, well, I kept telling her I'm really nervous to cover it. I also told her I had 14 pages of notes. That's my first question every time was, I don't know the topic. I'm always like, how many pages? And then today, because usually it's like seven, six. You're like, 14. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, this week it's going to be a very heavy episode. Um, originally, I was going to cover an unsolved murder from Australia, but then I realized that I really haven't been covering many cases involving like people of color, black people, what have you. So I was like, okay. I need to shift gears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we can't just focus consistently on one race. Yes. It's just not the way we should do it. Um, I decided to look up some case- cases focusing on this, and I stumbled upon this case. Um, I will say, and I think I've mentioned it later in my notes too, this was really hard to research because there's information. There's not a lot of detail. Like, there's some detail, but there's not a lot to make it make you feel satisfied with the information. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so you're getting, like, little tidbits of stuff, but we want more details. Yes, we need more details. So, once again, found this case. It's from Boston. Once I kind of got a little bit into it, I started getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and I was just dumbfounded with how much 
happen. Um, so the topic can cl be classified as like an important distraction that needs to be focused on. Mm -hmm. I know typically we try to distract ourselves with like weird tales of like true crime, paranormal, conspiracy, what have you. Sometimes they're dark. I mean, I think true crime is dark within itself and sometimes the other stuff can be dark. Yeah, exactly. And with this one, this is just something that given the climate, um, given everything that's been going on the last year, well, centuries, I think it's something that we need to learn about mm -hmm. a little bit better. So it's referred to as the Roxbury murders due to the geographical area that the victims were found in or from uh, being a neighborhood in Boston called Roxbury. Uh, however, it should be noted that some of the murders reportedly took place in the South End, the Jamaica Plains area, uh, Back Bay, and Dorchester, other neighborhoods within Boston near Roxbury. So unfortunately, we are going to be talking about 13 victims total. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, there were also multiple arrests for this case, being that this isn't necessarily a crime done by one individual in a serial killing kind of fashion. Uh, lack of spotty media coverage and lack of police support also played a hand at the injustices revolving this case, which we will get into, obviously. And I will acknowledge the other three podcasts that I noticed had covered this topic as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so they include Ghoulish Tendencies, Fatalities, and Chills, a true crime podcast. I did listen to the Ghoulish Tendencies one, would recommend their show. Finally, before we take a nosedive into this, here is the trigger warning. There are there's going to be discussions of rape, murder, discussions of racism, sexism. Once again, it's going to be a really heavy topic. So, you know, if if you're not in the headspace to listen today, totally understandable. But we hope you do come back and listen eventually so that you can learn more about this case. Yes, feel free to put it in the queue and have it for another day. Exactly. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'm going to break down the victims and details then discuss those who were arrested for uh, some of the crimes and then kind of like the takeaway of the whole case. Gotcha. So tragedy begins on Monday, January 29th, 1979, when 15-year-old Christine Ricketts and 17-year-old Andrea Foyer were found on the sidewalk of East Lenox Street within the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. The following information I got from the masscases.com website. So Boston police detectives responded on January 29th to a radio calling regarding bodies being discovered. When police pulled up, they witnessed the two teens' bodies lying near one another on the street. Christine's body was allegedly inside a large blue duffel bag while Andrea was found in a green plastic trash bag. Mm -hmm. Some reports claim that both bodies were dismembered while others claim that one or the other were dismembered. Andrea's body appeared to be covered by a multicolored bedspread, or bedspread, sorry, or furniture throw. Uh, the cause of death for both girls was ruled strangulation and the time of death was determined to be sometime in the morning or afternoon of January 28th. The medical examiner also noted that Andrea had suffered from injuries to her mouth, which would suggest she'd been hit in the mouth for, by like a fist, like she was punched in the face by somebody. Some background on the girls. So Christine, according to the Say Her Name website, was reportedly shy, uh, quiet, who one day hoped to be a social worker. And Andrea was reportedly also known to be caring, like her friend Christine, and was known to help her ill grandparents quite often. Only a day later, on January 30th, 15-year-old Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson's body was discovered in a yard nearby her home. Gwendolyn lived on Park Street within the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston, east of Roxbury. Gwendolyn, based on my Google mapping, was found approximately 12 minutes away from where Andrea and Christine were found on East Lenox Street. 
The cause of death was ruled strangulation. According to the Say Her Name website, Gwendolyn was a reported lively girl and one of 10 children in her family. Uh, it was also reported that at the time she was saving up to go to gymnastics camp and prior to her discovery, she had went missing. I believe the family had tried to report her missing, but not much was really done. That's also annoying thing. It's like you always go to like, report people missing and they're like, oh, you have to wait, which I totally get. There's like a policy. But when like you know someone that's not their like character, yeah. you know something's wrong. That, like, that, that hurts to know that they don't care at that certain point. And then they think, oh, they're not really missing. They ran away. Well, that's the thing. I kind of wonder if, because I've heard, I don't know which podcast, and I could be very wrong, but I remember hearing that that whole, oh, you have to wait 48 hours or what have you, isn't necessarily like a legal thing. Like it's mm -hmm. not, I, I don't know how accurate that is. Or like, yeah, when they choose to in investigate further. Yeah. Or go that road and be like, well, we're going to wait. Or like, maybe we'll see. Yeah. Or and we'll kind of get to why, I mean, obviously there's a lot of racist undertones or sexist undertones, but there's mm. also classist undertones too that we mm. need to talk about. So, but we'll get to it. Don't, don't you worry. We will get to it. So February 2nd, 25 year old Karen Pratter was located near the Boston Parks Department, which is located in Franklin Park. In a Boston Globe article I read, Karen was reported as appearing tall and slender who had a love for plants and dancing to disco music. Karen was also a mother of then two-year-old Taisha. Mm -hmm. It's been reported that she was on her way to her grandfather's home that day um, and kind of like to take them shopping or to pick up errands for them, just trying to help them out. Yeah. When she didn't return home from doing errands, her boyfriend apparently reported her as missing. In a twist from Andrea Christine Gwendolyn's deaths, Karen had reportedly been beaten and stabbed where the others so far had been strangled. So there's a change in how, a change of cause of death at this point. So she wasn't strangled at all or she what? No. So she was beaten and stabbed. Oh. There wasn't any, as far as I know, once again, based on the information I read, there wasn't any sign of strangulation. Yeah, so right from right there, you could already think like those ones were linked and then kind of stopped because you're like, mm, I don't know. Exactly, and that's going to become really apparent as we go on with the victims. So for those who are wondering, her daughter did go, I believe, to live with her mother, like Karen's her mother. mother yeah. yeah. Things seemed to go quiet for a bit until later on, on February 21st, 29-year-old Darielle Ann Hargett was found strangled and bounded inside her Wellington apartment. Now, for those who are wondering, I've seen her name written as D-A-R- Y-A-L. Um, I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but if I'm not, please let me know. Anyways, it's been reported that she was found in her apartment by her landlord. She was reportedly in a choir and worked as a social worker up until her death. Based on a Boston Globe article, Darielle was described as being quiet, serious. Like she, she was, she was kind of one of those people that I imagine was very dedicated to her work and dedicate, like anything she wanted to do she's dedicated mm, gotcha. and very you know i'm i'm, I'm doing well, oriented this. i'm exactly. gonna get this done she was reportedly one of the first people to be interested in the southern christian leadership conference which was a civil rights group which led her to move to boston after graduating from virginia union university since i believe they had something similar to that group in boston at the time okay so she wasn't really like she wasn't born and raised in boston she ended up moving to boston and she uh, allegedly worked as a counselor at the Norfolk Correctional Institute. And she, I believe, worked there. She wasn't a, almost like 
deadly motor vehicle accident. So she worked until the accident and then after she was reportedly trying to find work again okay. as a social worker. According to her Aunt Sarah in one uh, Boston Globe article I read, because there's multiple Boston Globe articles I reference. <laughs> yes. Dariel was the first black person to be buried in the city-run cemetery at Williamston, North Carolina, which at the time and even now I think is kind of a big deal because I, I'm going to assume it was probably, there's a lot of white people there. Like, I don't mm. think it was necessarily the most segregated mm, area. area. So it's, it's great that that was there, but she went way too young. Oh, yeah. She's only 29. It was a bubba still. Exactly. So then on March 14th, 17-year-old Desiree Denise Etheridge was found to have been beaten and burned to death only 100 yards away from where Andrea and Christine were found in January. So, yeah, it's still they could have run other links somehow, whatever, but all these different, like, MOs and people. It's exactly. Like... Uh, the part-time student also reportedly lived on Park Street, similarly to Gwendolyn. Uh, an unnamed woman was quoted saying at one point in a Boston Globe article, she would give her heart to anybody. If you said anything kind to her, she'd stick to you just like glue. Mm -hmm. uh, Desiree was reportedly known as being friendly and adventurous, who was very streetwise for her age. I mean, she's only 17. Yeah. She had apparently also spent time in foster homes as a child. And according to the one Boston Globe article I read, Desiree's friend Aaron was the one who had to identify her burned body. So I can only imagine what trauma Aaron had to go through. Yeah. If I did that for you, I'd be, like, traumatized. A thousand percent. It's also been documented that Desiree's skull and jaw were reportedly shattered. Oh. Yeah. So it, it was... Like some violent beatings. It was a violent attack. I mean, all these are violent, but... They, yeah, but, was, like, to take that, like, extra aggression Extra out. step. Yeah. It's bad. Darlene Rogers is unfortunately our next victim. She was only 22 years old when her body was discovered in Washington Park within the South End on April 14th. So apparently appeared that she had been stabbed multiple times and when found, she was undressed from the waist down. There was no direct mention of her being sexually assaulted. However, you can maybe lead to that conclusion yourself, so to speak. Unlike some of the others, I wasn't able to find much about Darlene's background or even anything more than when she was found dead, which is really unfortunate. Because some, some of the Boston Globe articles and some of the other articles I read, they kind of hinted at like what the victims' lives were before they were found. Mm -hmm. Some of them weren't. At all. Which is like, yeah, like, they're all equal victims. Like, they should all have some kind of attention to everything in detail. Yeah, and that's what I mean by... There's information about this case. If you look really hard... It's spotty. It's so spotty. So 13 days after Darlene was found, our next victim, Lois Hood Nesbitt, found deceased in her bed on April 27th. According to a Boston Globe article by Douglas S. Crockett, Lois was found tied up with her hands behind her back and with a radial electric cord knotted around her neck. Lois, who had separated from her husband several years prior, lived in a three-story apartment building within Roxbury, specifically near Eggleston Square. Uh, in the same article, this, that same Boston Globe article, Lois lived in the apartment with two other male roommates. It kind of sounded like things were platonic. So for those who are jumping ahead being like, oh, she lived with two other dudes. Don't get it twisted. They're friends. They're friends. And like, even if they weren't friends, it's who the, who the fuck cares? Who the, who, like, who actually cares? Anyways. I was going to say, girls can be just friends with boys. Platon, yeah. Platonacy is a thing. Yes. 
before people get it all hyped up about it. I will mention this again later, but at the time of Lois's murder and in the same Boston Globe article I've been kind of mentioning regarding Lois, it was documented that Lieutenant Arthur Keeley, or Kelly, who was the acting chief of the Boston Police Department homicide unit, noted at this point that Lois's murder was not connected to the prior murders at all. The next day, 18-year-old Faye Polner of Newton was found deceased and in a parked car at a nearby school in Dorchester. So this is where things get interesting because our previous victims were all black. Okay. Faye was not. Okay. Faye is our only white victim. Okay. Uh, so Faye was reportedly a white woman and in one article by Cheryl R. Duvall for the Harvard Crimson had no relation really to the other murders. But it's really confusing because sometimes she's clumped in and sometimes she's not. Okay. Yeah. Faye's cause of death appeared to be manual strangulation, so similar to our first victims. Mm -hmm. In terms of her background, apparently she was living with her father, Norman, at the time shortly before her murder. Prior to her death, she had reportedly dropped out of the Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her father, Norman Polner, was reportedly on vacation at the time of his daughter's death. In a Boston Globe article that I read, apparently he was gone for at least two weeks, either sailing or in Germany, according to what a neighbor told the Globe. Faye's mother lived in St. Louis, but flew in when she heard the news. So she was clumped in, I think, because of where her body was located. She was located in Dorchester, which is kind of near Roxbury, I believe, mm. and everything. So and the strangulation kind of ties in a little bit. A yeah. little bit, but she came from a wealthy background. She was Caucasian. She was white. Mm -hmm. That was kind of... So that right off the hop, like, they had all these other of-color victims, and they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, well, there's this first one, like, they don't really fit the demographic of the other victims. So exactly. Right off yeah. the hop. Yeah, so Faye didn't really fit the demographic of the others, but because she was found in the same area so and... the same kind of MO, way of death. Yeah, and... cause of death. I think that's why she keeps getting lumped in, but mm -hmm. other than that, like, I don't really... Yeah. And it's, once again, it's hard because sometimes in some places she's mentioned, other articles and writings she's not. Okay. So on Saturday, May 5th, uh, Valerie Holiday was only 19 years old when she was reportedly stabbed by an 18-year-old man. And Valerie was conscious when police arrived on scene. However, she would pass away in the hospital. Hmm. And that's all I can say right now about that situation. We'll potentially we'll get into it. Yeah. Okay. Reportedly on that same Saturday, Valerie was stabbed. Sandra Boulware, who was only 30 years old at the time, was found at a nearby local YMCA. She was burned to death. Um, and burning. Yep. And it's been reported that the patch of grass she was found on was also burning, meaning that she couldn't burn right on scene. So Sandra had only been in Boston for approximately one year, and it's been documented that she had moved to the area from Connecticut. Then, only two days later, on May 7th, Bobby Jean Graham was the 11th black woman murdered during this entire time span. Bobby was 34 years old when her body was found in a Boston alleyway, only a few floors down from her apartment, which was located at 293 Commonwealth Avenue. The autopsy report claimed that Bobby had died due to a lacerated liver, which was believed to be caused by multiple hits to her midsection with some form of blunt object. So now here is where things get a bit weird. I was doing my research, I didn't find this name of this next victim until I stumbled upon an issue from the New Woman's Times, which I believe was like a magazine or newspaper article. I don't know if it still exists today. Okay. But the one I'm referencing is volume five, issue 13, uh, where there was a chart of all the women that were murdered between January 29th to May 29th, because 
these crimes happen within like a very small time frame. And I was going to come back to it and be like, how long has it, has it been yet? And I was like, it's only been a few months. Yeah. So this is where I stumbled upon the murder of Lily Mae Nesbitt. I don't think she's related to our other victim, Lois Nesbitt. There was no mention of the relation or anything, which I feel like if they were related, they would have definitely... They talked about it. So. Exactly. So Just coincidental. Yeah. So Lily was murdered in her home on May 29th, 1979. Her 18-year-old daughter, Burnell, allegedly witnessed the murder of her mother and ran to a neighbor for help during the attack. That's awful. Lily was stabbed 10 times. Her poorly stab wounds were found on one of her ears, her face, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and... Uh, back right hand. That's disgusting. Yes. Poor children would see that. Well, yeah, exactly. So we have 13 victims in total. 12 of them were black and one, only one was white. Because the murders happen in what seemed to be kind of like one after another with very small cooling off periods, I think they were written as kind of being lumped together. There is some some similarities to some, but like they're not all the same thing, same exactly. um, MO or cause of death. So they're like, hey, we're going to lump them but and figure it out after the fact. Now this is happening, but there's no real way to see what who did this specifically well yeah and we'll kind of get well we'll, we're getting really close to getting to who was arrested for what and i think because of the location and everything they were referred to as the roxbury murders mostly because of the geographical area Mm -hmm. and they were lumped because of where they were found within that geographical area they were also mostly grouped together because once again 12 of the 13 victims were black identified women, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they were lumped together in the next section, we'll kind of hear about different arrests made by different people or on different people, Mm -hmm. which normally we as society, I think are so susceptible to thinking that if there is a group of victims being lumped together, it typically means that there's usually only one suspect or if it's so quick, like back to back to back. You think they're on a spree of sorts. Exactly. Uh, It kind of makes things a little bit interesting that some people group these murders based on the fact that they were women. Others grouped the victims based on their geographical areas. You know, others based on race. Like, it just, it's interesting how they were all lumped together because of multiple different things. And yes, there are similarities, but there's also a lot of differences too, yeah. right? I don't know. I'm not specifically pointing at the fact that one person did all these murders. I mean, that my mind obviously did go there a couple times because like... Yeah, first you're like, this one gets strangled, this one gets strangled, this one gets strangled, then something else. You're like, oh... Well, not only that, but the time frame, like from January 1979 to May 1979, you're telling me multiple people committed all these murders in the same period of a couple months? Exactly. And I know that's that can happen, especially in major cities like Boston, right? Large area of things Exactly. Going on. I mean, there's murders happening every day, every minute of the day. But I think typically when they're lumped together like this, we automatically our minds automatically go, oh, it's, you know, it's definitely, it has to be one person or like one group, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So because of the police work and media coverage, one killer or a group attacking these women could be something that wasn't necessarily considered because of the demographic and the marginalization of these women. Mm -hmm. Minus uh, Faye, because Faye came from a different kind of class. She was white, this, that, and the other, right? Yes. But as mentioned, she's kind of sporadically (laughs) included in the group. Sometimes, sometimes. Exactly. So a common thing we'll chat about later on is how these cases weren't necessarily given as much time and energy in terms of investigation and research. Compared to what? Compared to if it was just like a white woman, mm-hmm. a bunch of white women that were murdered. Yeah. So they weren't really given the whole limelight situation. Yeah. So now we're going to focus on the arrest and kind of acknowledging some of the unsolved cases because unfortunately some of them are still unsolved to this day. Which is thickening. Yes. 
So our first arrest is for the death of Christine and Andrea. Uh, Dennis Jamal Porter was arrested for the murder of the two young women. I was able to kind of get some information regarding this charge and the legal proceedings thanks to the masscases.com website. I was also able to find out kind of what happened to Christine and Andrea, potentially. Okay. Uh, Christine had reportedly known Dennis for about six months before their deaths, as Dennis and Christine were reportedly a romantic item. Mm -hmm. Christine and Dennis lived together, first at the Milner Hotel, where Andrea reportedly also lived, and then the couple moved to 1 Cortez Street. So... On Saturday, January 27th, Christine and Dennis, I believe, were maybe kind of like pre-drinking at their place, not 100% sure. But we do know that sometime around 3.30 a.m. on Sunday, January 28th, they had gone out to a club. Okay. Which is really late to go out to it a club. And when I was reading that, I was like, that's so late to go out to a club. Usually clubs are closed, done, they're cleaning at that point in time. It's a bedtime. That's way after bedtime. Uh, regardless, at the club, they met up with Andrea and a guy named Robert Harville. Two eyewitnesses claimed to have watched Andrea and Dennis fight at the club, stating during the trial that Andrea appeared very upset. She was really... She wasn't having it. Whatever Dennis was doing, she was just not impressed, probably. Hmm. We don't really know specifics, but based on what I read, she was not happy. Okay. So the couple stayed at the club until 6.30 a.m. and then dispersed. Robert reportedly went to the nearest subway uh, while the girls went to go get breakfast. And Dennis apparently just went a separate direction from everyone. So they all kind of just like went their own ways a little bit, except for the girls. They, they did their own thing. Mm-hmm. And Dennis ends up reconnecting with the girls at some point with the three taking a cab to his and Christine's apartment on Cortez Street. It's been documented that Dennis gave the police reported seven different versions of what ended up happening when they went in the cab and got back to the... Yeah, I know. There's just, like, a lot of different stories he was telling the police. So, for example, at one point he reportedly told police that they had gone back to the apartment where he recalled Christine changing her shoes before he allegedly passed out. They had gone back to the apartment so the girls could switch out shoes. I'm I'm assuming they're probably wearing heels. Mm -hmm. Don't really want to wear heels to breakfast, want to be a little bit more comfy, switching them out. He says he passes out at that point and has no idea what happened. Okay. And then all of a sudden he wakes up later that day around like 11 and Christine and Andrea are gone and they're found deceased. And what's the other stories? I'm not 100% sure. It was just in the in the notes. Like, he said he had so many versions. Yeah, he had so many versions. But So either you knew you were a sleeper, you knew you weren't. Exactly. That's sketchy. Yeah. So it should be noted that the medical examiner testified that the girls' stomachs were empty of food, indicating that neither of them had probably eaten several hours prior to the deaths. That and neither of the girls were wearing shoes when they were found. Which leads room for a little bit of speculation that maybe the girls didn't go out for breakfast as planned and maybe something happened in the apartment, hence why they were wearing or not wearing shoes. It didn't also help Dennis's case either that a worker from the Milner Hotel testified that she recognized the duffel bag that Christine's body was found in as being Dennis's from when they had lived at the hotel. That's sketch. Yeah. So Dennis was tried in 1980 for the first degree murder of Christine and Andrea, in which a Suffolk County jury reportedly found Dennis 
guilty. Dennis would go on and try and appeal this conviction, which was denied. Regardless from what I've gathered in my research, Dennis was convicted for the murder of Christine and Andrea. We don't know what his sentencing was. Mm -hmm. We don't know, like, any other information. Um, I did try to look him up. There is a website. I forget what exactly it's called the top of my head, and I didn't write it down. But there is a website where you can type in someone's name into, like, a... It's kind of like a Google search of the federal... Like, the federal prison. Mm, Okay. I couldn't find him. I don't know how old he was in 1980. So I don't know if he was like old, like a lot older than the girls. I don't mm. know if he's still alive. I don't know if he's been released. We don't have that information, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, like, so for him to already be tied to that, like, just there's a lot of already skipped things with his topic. It, it seems weird, yeah, that they are kind of lumped together, all the victims, and they've already got like the first two. It's like, well, then he did it. Yeah. And then we have to move on. So an arrest of Kenneth Spann was our next one. Uh, and he was arrested for the murder of Karen. Finding information on Kenneth was so hard. There was nothing out there. Essentially. Uh, I was able to find court documents that were able to paint kind of a picture of a little bit of kind of what went down. But regardless, in a direct quote from the Justia US law website that I accessed, here's kind of a breakdown. So one Dean Richardson reported that on February 3rd, while he was at Kenneth's apartment, Kenneth had testified to him that he killed a woman and that her body was in the lower inside hallway outside of the defendant's apartment. Richardson went to look and saw the woman's body as Kenneth had mentioned. Fuck. Yeah. On February 4th, Kenneth had asked Richardson to help get rid of the body and Richardson refused. He's like, no, I'm good. I have other things to do. Why didn't he call the cops and be like, this guy has a body here? Yeah, he he will call the cops, but not until April 10th. Yeah. So Richardson, <laughs> who had become fearful of Kenneth, had reported that the, like the, the February 3rd incident to police Later that day, identified, like, he was able to identify a picture of Karen as the person whose body he sent, he found or saw. Traces of Karen's blood were allegedly found in Kenneth's apartment, hallway, and in his vehicle. Karen's injuries were consistent with the use of a knife owned by Kenneth and the use of a post from a banister outside of Ken's apartment. So they were able to connect that. The impression of a partial footprint of a sneaker on Karen's coat found near her body was similar to the impression made by a sneaker owned by Kenneth. Mm-hmm. A blood-stained gold ring similar to the one regularly worn by Karen that wasn't found on her body was discovered underneath a rug in Kenneth's bedroom. And finally, Kenneth had scratches on his neck and was wearing a band-aid on February 2nd, the date of Karen's disappearance, kind of alluding to the fact that she probably fought. Back. Yeah. yeah. So based on what I read in the mattofboston.com article, Kenneth was convicted for the murder of Karen. The Justia Law website that I was referencing for this specific part of the case was essentially Kenneth's appeal for the charges, which I believe was denied. Unfortunately, once again, I wasn't able to find out how long he served and all the specific details as per that case. But the dude, I get you're a little bit fearful, but like, just leave. Yeah. And then call the cops and then Richardson he gets arrested. kind of didn't really do his due diligence. No. I mean, he eventually did. I'll give him that, but not like... Right away. Yeah. Karen, and, Karen but, was murdered in February. Maybe and it's now April. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I feel for you, right? You could like left and been like lost contact and just call. Yeah. Like find the body still there. So our next one is... Just as confusing. So a reported Muslim teacher by the name of James Brown Jr. would be arrested for the first degree murder, assault, battery, and rape of Gwendolyn. Brown was reportedly 40 years old at the time of Gwendolyn's death, and in some reports he is referred to as being her neighbor. 
Okay. which adds an interesting mix to the whole situation. According to a Boston Globe article, two friends of Wendelin had testified against Brown at his trial. So one of her friends, a 14-year-old Vivian Harrison, reported that they saw her friend the night of her death walking on Washington Street, where they saw a man walking real fast behind her. Furthermore, Vivian told the court that she accidentally bumped into a pole whilst walking, probably because she was trying to keep an eye on her friend in the situation. When she hit the pole, she lost track of her friend and the man that was walking behind her. So she like- Got disorientated. Yeah, exactly. So another witness, uh, 19-year-old Jacqueline Moody, reported that she had told a false story earlier on in the trial, which indicated James. So she had a testimony saying like, oh yeah, James did this, that, and the other. But then later on in the trial, she's like, yeah, that wasn't true. She perjured herself. Yeah. She, yeah. Not great. James would be acquitted by a jury. Not sure if it was due to lack of evidence or the shoddy eyewitness testimonies, because to be honest, I don't, I don't really know if there was any evidence for the fact that like James Brown Jr. did it. Other than, yeah, eyewitnessing that they saw him. Potentially, yeah. And even in Vivian's testimony, from what I read, it didn't necessarily, like, I, I don't recall her saying, yeah, it was him. She just recalled a, a, a man walking behind her. Okay, yeah, so there's no way to tell. <sighs> yeah, exactly. So according to a Boston Globe article, Elizabeth Muse, Gwendolyn's mother, reportedly stated after the verdict was announced, I feel bitter about the verdict, but what can I do about it? That's that. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're still not even halfway done, so it's only going to get sadder. Our next arrest was for 32-year-old Richard Strother for the first-degree murder of Lois, Lois Nesbitt. Once arrested, bail was reportedly set at $100,000 or $25,000 cash for Richard, which is interesting. So after six days of trial and three hours of the jurors' meeting, Richard was acquitted for the murder of Lois. What? Yeah. Once again, this is one of those cases where there really is not any information. Like there's a little bit, mm, no, there's just really not. So you like, he like gets like charged and then he gets off, but you don't really know what they've been Exactly. Uh, so in another Boston Globe article I read, the assistant district attorney general, Philip B. Chesney, uh, noted that there were difficulties in the prosecution case due to the opening statement he told to the jury where he allegedly noted that his entire presentation will be based on circumstantial evidence. Not a great, front. No, because there's nothing for sure saying that this guy did it. Exactly. Yeah, so our um, next confirmed arrest we have involving this case is of Osborne Shepard, who I believe also went by the name of Jimmy. So Jimmy uh, was 55 years old at the time, has been documented as Sandra's boyfriend and the last person who maybe saw her alive. So when police interrogated Jimmy after finding Sandra's body, he reportedly said he saw Sandra on the previous Tuesday, which she was murdered on the Saturday, apparently. Mm -hmm. He further disclosed that the two had bought some marijuana and amaretto on the Tuesday and spent about seven hours indulging in all that at his place in Roxbury. Jimmy was arrested for the murder of Sandra and did go to trial. However, as you guessed it, there's a catch. Mm -hmm. So I read in the Leader Telegram article that apparently the state's Supreme Court overturned Jimmy's murder conviction, where he would be given a new trial and that any evidence taken from his home could not be used again because apparently there wasn't a valid search warrant. See, this is why you need to follow the book so that when you get shit, you can actually use it. This is why you can't be sloppy when you're doing police work. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, you cannot be sloppy. You need like to be on your little, fucking game. Any little thing that, like, that, that 
prosecution or defense can use against you. They like, will, yeah. They'll use it, and then you can't be using it, and if that's your main thing to catch them, you're like, well, I'm fucked. Exactly. So, according to that same article, police wanted to search Jimmy's home the day after the murder. However, no suitable search warrant form was given for said search. So police tried to adapt a form used by obtaining warrants to search for controlled substances, which was granted by a judge. So they allegedly went in, they're like, oh yeah, we have a warrant to search your home for drugs. But in reality, they were searching for anything for this case to convict They're trying to backpedal yeah. and it wasn't working. Exactly. So further, the state Supreme Court threw out Jimmy's conviction due to the fact that the police were using a defective warrant, which once again, we also don't know if... Jimmy even was a good suspect. Yeah, I don't know for sure. You know, he's saying he only saw her on Tuesday. She was murdered Saturday. Mm-hmm. I know they always go to the boyfriend or the partner or what have you, but... Yes. And we'll also get to a little bit why some of these uh, suspects were a little bit... I'm not going to say problematic, but the way that the police looked for them was a little bit mm-hmm. problematic, as you can imagine. There's always some problems. There's always some problems. So the next uh, the next arrest was of Eugene B. Conaway. So he was arrested for the murder of Valerie. It was super hard to find, once again, any information regarding him. Of course. Borderline nearly impossible. Uh, I think author Matthew T. Connolly of the Matt of Boston website article, I used, noted the same struggle as well. And in a direct quote from his writings, he wrote, Holland's case, I can find no result, although the man who was present when she was found, she identified as her assailant before she died, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. So, just as a reminder, Valerie was still alive when emergency services came to her aid. And based off this, I believe Eugene was outed as the assailant by Valerie before she died. Oh, okay. But I don't know anything else. Okay. So it's kind of hard to say, right? Because nothing out there. Yeah, there's nothing out there. So the next one is interesting. So, so did, did Eugene get convicted then? We don't know. Oh, okay. No idea. Literally, okay. there's nothing. Nothing. And okay. I, I looked up his name. I looked up the time of the murder. I, I, but yeah, there's nothing. Sorry to disappoint. So the next one is interesting, as mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Everard Genius was arrested for the murder of Lily. I'm going to refer to him as his last name because it's Genius and he's not he's not so smart. I'm assuming he was picked up for the arrest due to the fact that there was eyewitness testimony. I mean, her daughter was home when apparently she was stabbed. However, I'm not specifically sure. So this is kind of my assumption. So, when arraigned on July 16th, 1979, Genius reportedly entered a not guilty plea. He also privately retained Reuben Dawkins as his lawyer. In a direct quote from the Justia Law website, Genius is of Jamaican origin. He is a believer in voodoo, and he admitted that he was in a long, adulterous relationship with Lily. So, he had a wife uh, named Dolores, who is aware of the relationship he had with Lily. And apparently... Open relationship. Yes, and apparently Dolores and Lily frequently complained to one another about Genius's behavior. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they they would constantly bitch to one another about how... Their husband and boyfriend is crap. Yeah, exactly. So Genius testified that he visited Lily on the morning of May 29th, 1979, after returning from a trip to Canada. According to Genius, Lily reportedly accused him of having an affair with a third woman and furthermore complained that he was spending too much time with his wife. He further reported that he refused to leave Lily's home, so she called police. 
uh, based on the court files from the trial from his own telling, he reportedly spoke to police calmly. He was, wasn't aggravated, this, that, the other. Mm-hmm. And eventually police left, like, without any incident, without any charges, this, that, and the other. And he left, or no? Yeah, so he eventually goes to Dolores' home, where he accounts that Lily called him and asked him to come back to her place. And based on what I read, I think he did. And when he got there, the two got into another argument where he claims that she had pulled a tried to pull a gun on him. She pulled the gun out. She tried to fire it. It didn't. It, I don't know if it was unloaded or if it misfired or what have you. But he claimed at that point he had no recollection of the morning's events. He didn't know what happened after. But he wasn't shot. But he wasn't. As far as we know, he wasn't shot. No, I don't believe so. I forget. Yeah, no. How do you forget that a gun? Well, I mean. I guess if it's a traumatic event, you could say that, you know, you blacked out. But regardless, uh, Lily's neighbor witnessed Genius leaving the home before, before finding Lily in a pool of her own blood. In court, he blamed his wife Dolores for casting a voodoo spell on Lily, forcing Lily into attempting to kill him. Genius's lawyer, once again Reuben Dawkins, reportedly offered two defenses at the trial. One being that he acted in self-defense in the sincere belief that Lily had intended on killing him, and the second was that Genius's mental state precluded him from forming the necessary intent to either premeditate Lily's death or to act with extreme atrocity and cruelty, according to the Justia Law website. So without getting too heavy duty into the trial, this, that, and the other, uh, Genius was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Lily. He did appeal this verdict from 1995 to 1997 due to a plethora of reasons. There were reported issues with the psychiatric assessments and with the jury. Uh, regardless, though, from what I gathered from the Justia Law website, is that the motion to dismiss the petition for a habeas corpus was allowed. So habeas corpus, as defined by dictionary.com, is the motion for a person to be brought before a judge or court, especially for investigation of restraint of person's liberty used as a protection against illegal imprisonment. I don't know what happened after that because there's literally (laughs) no information after the fact and it drives me insane. So I think he was convicted. He appealed it. He was granted his habeas corpus. Okay. And that's where the trail goes cold. Well, that's just that. I know. It's so, so annoying. (laughs) So to kind of summarize all of this the best way I can, with over 13 murders total, yes. five of them remain unsolved. So once again, the murder of Billie Jean, Desiree, Darielle, Darlene, and Faye. Three reportedly had convictions. Once again, Christine, Andrea, and Karen. Three were acquitted, which once again was Louis, Gwendolyn, and Sandra. And Lily, Lily's and Valerie's, I'm not sure where to classify them. Because there's literally no specific, simplistic information out there. Yeah, like what happened. Yeah. Exactly. So I believe that most, if not all, the suspects were part of a marginalized society as well. Just a takeaway for listeners and an added piece. So I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there was a reason why I kind of felt that police were not necessarily the greatest at picking the suspects they did. Some of them obviously were convicted and found guilty. Guilty. Mm -hmm. All of them were black. And from the area. All the suspects? Yes. Oh. As far as I know, all of them were reportedly black. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because apparently Boston police, as far as we know, did not look into any white suspects. It seems suspicious. Exactly. So once again, we don't know if police actually did have a list of white folks that potentially were suspected in these murders. We don't really have that information, but it's just interesting that 
a lot of these suspects were from the same marginalized communities as the women. And because of that, no one seems to have any information or has published any information about these cases or crimes. Now, I do have to acknowledge one potential online theory that I saw regarding who was maybe behind these string of murders. Some people at the time and since then thought that these murders were actually done by the Boston Strangler. So the Boston Strangler, who some believe was Albert DeSalvo, uh, terrorized Boston from June 1962 to roughly January 1964. However, after quick research, most of the Boston Strangler's victims were predominantly white. I think there maybe was maybe like one or two black women, but they're mostly white women. Mm, I see. So not only that, but it also took place years before the string of murders in Roxbury, which once again happened between January and May of 1979. I won't get into the whole Boston Strangler case, Strangler, <laughs> the whole Boston Strangler case, because that's not today's focal point. No. And it's something that, you know, I I saw it like once or twice in a couple articles, like, oh, is this a new Boston Strangler? Or like, is this the Boston Strangler? Only a few of them got strangled. Yeah. And just to clarify for image imagery, Albert was white. So even if he was looked at, mm. I don't know if he'd be tied to these ones. And I don't necessarily know if he attacked that area of Boston. Mm. We're going to get to the uproar and takeaway because there's a lot. Okay. Um, in terms of research issues, which I've heavily hinted and sprinkled upon this There topic, was nothing in some points. Yeah. So as I think I've mentioned, this case was really challenging to research in the sense of Although I'm referencing a lot of articles and, you know, when I do my resource list, which I think I'm going to do after the music, um, like our outro music today, just because there is a lot that I'm referencing. And some people like listening to that. Some people don't. I This is a hell, going to be a long case anyways. So, yeah. yeah. All the sources. Exactly. Um, but even with the amount of sources I had, it was just like little little crumbs in each article, in each resource. Or it was overbearing with information, but nothing that was really in your face. Like any of the Justia Law websites I use, they had a lot of like heavy court legal matters. Mm. Some of it I understood, some of it I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but uh, it didn't have a painted picture of, these are the victims, That like this is the crime, this is a crime, this, these are the victims, here are the suspects, here's the convictions, end of story. Mm, okay. Which is really... Annoying. Yeah. You know, so some of them also had information about the victims, like background information, what have you, what they were interested in, what they were doing for work, what, you know, if they had kids. Whereas others, it just seemed like there was absolutely no information other than the fact that they were murdered, which is really devastating. Yeah, like some of them in the beginning, you said they did this for a living, yeah. they were this kind of person, where some of them like, they were the nicest person, caring, exactly. blah, blah, blah. And as I, you know, kind of mentioned in the last section regarding arrests, there was basically very little confirming information as to who actually served time for the murders. You know, we do have some convictions confirmed, but we don't necessarily know whether they that person served full term. We don't know how long they were serving for. I mean, it was 1979, 1980. Yeah. I don't know. Would they have served life? Who knows? It's, no, de no details. No details. So usually in a typical true crime case or kind of the more notorious ones that we hear from, you know, either our show or other shows... Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like a, a beginning, middle, and end in terms of, okay, this is the victim, they were born in this state, or this is the killer, they were born here. Mm -hmm. uh, we hear about the childhood, their adulthood, the crimes that took place in detail. And then eventually we get to the arrest, jail time, maybe more, and that's it. Yeah. Like, it, 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 we have a perfect little story with a cute little bow on it, whereas this one, it's just 
so under research. Here's some puzzle pieces. Yeah, here's some puzzle pieces, and I think that's what really got me, because I think I had told you, and I know I told Tanner, my partner, this was one of the hardest cases for me to research, because every time I thought I was done, I'd find a little bit more, but mm. I'd only find a little bit more, and I couldn't go down, a, like, a rabbit hole. Yeah. Not that, you know, going down rabbit holes is always a good thing, but I, I just felt like I was left with more questions than answers, and I still am. Yeah. Which is really hard when you want to try and put a bow on everything mm-hmm. right especially when especially a case where it'd be nice to put a bow on everything given the victims and given everything that's gone on yeah no doubt so the next part of kind of like the upper and takeaway of this case is the racism and sexism and police and media because mm-hmm. as mentioned it's not great at all. lovely <laughs> yeah so 12 of the 13 victims, as mentioned, were black women, and from what I gathered through my research, a lot of people felt that because they were black women, their voices weren't necessarily amplified and weren't necessarily heavily protected by police at that time. Police were reportedly telling black women that there was essentially no need to worry and that there were no safety concerns at the time that all these murders were taking place, which in retrospect obviously was a load of fucking shit. Yeah, because in like so many months, there was 13 people killed. Exactly. And it kind of reminds me of the Grim Sleeper case we covered of Lonnie David Franklin Jr. with Celine, where he had murdered a bunch of people over a longer time span, Mm -hmm. but it was primarily black women who were, you know, marginalized because they're of their race. They're also marginalized because they're women. And they were sex workers, too. Like, Mm -hmm. most of them, if not some... And because of that, police were like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, just go about your life. Go about your day. You know, it's probably random, this, that, and the other. Plot twist. No, it was a serial killer. Mm-hmm. So in the New Women's Times article, uh, they also pointed out how police were primarily looking at black suspects, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. for these crimes as opposed to white, white suspects. They also pointed heavily at the fact that it appeared as though police were making arrests really quickly which we know some st- sometimes doesn't necessarily bode well in the long scheme of things. So when you make a, a quick arrest, yeah, it's good. You're putting a, a really quick bow on it, but that might not necessarily be the person that actually did it. No, like, fine if you have all the evidence pointing in, like, it's dead set and local line sinker. Yeah. Okay. But then the other ones, when it was, oh, this is all in circumstantial evidence is the opening argument, you're like, this is going great. Or when they just go to the partner. Yeah. And Which I get as first suspect, but yeah. you have other suspects. Like, don't just stick to that. Well, exactly. And we don't know if the Boston police looked at any white people in the in neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, we don't know if they did. It doesn't seem like they did. That, Based on what I've read, it doesn't appear as though they did. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that the person that killed these women, whether it was multiple or one person, was black? Yeah. Right? I mean, we had a lot of racism going on at that point in time. We still do. We had before then. But who's to say it was it was a black man, right? Yeah. So not only that, but even though these murders in the media and online are being kind of meshed together, there were a lot of articles I saw where police weren't considering them as having anything to do with one another, which that kind of bugs me in a sense because you're telling me from January 1979 to May 1979, literally January 29th, 1979 is when our first victim was murdered. So end of the month. And then Lily, our last victim, or so sorry, yeah, Christina and Andrea were January 29th, 1979. Mm-hmm. Lily's murder was um, May 29th, 1979. You're telling me between that span, they, they, 
they, they weren't, they had nothing to do with one another. And like, coincidentally, all these people got murdered in this short, that short amount of months. In the same area. Yes, I, I, I understand heavily that the cause of death was different and that there were actual arrests made. On some of them, yes. But you're telling me they had nothing to do with one another. Like, I feel like it was a, a, regardless of whether it was done by the same person or group of people, what have you, black women were being attacked Mm -hmm. as a whole. In the same geographical area. Exactly. Some documented press pointed that the women were, some of the women were sex workers or simply runaways. And therefore, as we know from previous cases, it seems like there is less acknowledgement in terms of resolving a murder case or finding a missing, missing persons, if that's part of their description. So if that's part of their situation or once again their description it's already less looked at exactly and we know that from the robert picton case too right Mm -hmm. you know if they're already marginalized women based off their ethnicity or their race if they were sex workers if they had a history of drug use this like your background or stereotypical pop like little bubble you want to put them in it might make them more susceptible but doesn't mean that that's just the reasoning of that and then you forget about them exactly and that doesn't mean that they can't be investigated further yeah would yeah So once again, I don't have a definitive answer whether all of these were connected other than by some of the obvious similarities that we've mentioned. In another Harvard Crimson article by, there was no author listed, so whoever wrote this. Thanks. Thanks. uh, There was a really good quote that I'm going to directly use. So whether or not the murders were committed by the same person, they are related in that they have plunged the local black community into an atmosphere of fear and distress. These feelings are aimed especially at the police who have responded to violence against black women with much less enthusiasm than they have to similar crimes against life and property involving involving whites. Uh, the media has been no help either until the most recent murders. Press coverage has often been slighted or distorted the facts. Hmm. T. Yeah. So regarding the specific media coverage, because once again, uh, I, I reference the Boston Globe a lot and the Boston Globe, I think is like their main source. Yeah. The articles covering the cases were usually, like, way in the back of the paper. Mm. Or, you know, like... Not there wasn't, front page news, by any means. Exactly. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of detailed information. It was just like, oh, like, this woman was found. and So it was, like, a little, almost probably the size of, like, a little cra- like Craigslist thing. Yeah, exactly. This exactly. So that was problematic to begin with. And according mm. to um, the Journal della Reina website... Uh, they made some really valid points that in the beginning of this whole case, a lot of the murders were not only given little, like a little bit of spotlight in the newspapers. Um, they were not necessarily front page news as we as we assumed. So they weren't like right in your face as soon as you got your newspaper in the morning. They weren't right there, and I feel like I I wish that wasn't the case, but it was. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I feel that also took away from the investigation. Because if someone saw, I don't know, Andrea's face in the front page, they might have been like, oh, yeah, you know, she was connected to this person. And this person I heard said something. And you know yeah. what I mean? It, it would have it maybe led to a lot more information being investigated on. And a direct quote from the Journal della Reina website, The Globe took no responsibility for its complicity in the lack of public attention to the murders. When it did focus attention on the crimes, it was to attack the black community's response. Except for a small February 17th article on the murders, the Global remained silent about the crisis until February 21st when Dariel was found in her apartment. Then, inside a small box in the lower left-hand corner of the front page, 
The Globe reported the death of the fifth black woman in 30 days, misspelling her name completely. In contrast to the Globe, the Bay State Banner, the Black Community Weekly, ran full-blown coverage of the situation from February 1st and reported on the Black community's response. In terms of creating some form of safety or acknowledgement at the time, the Roxbury Community Outreach Committee, which was created apparently after the murders of Christine and Andrea, created a security patrol system to help by instituting neighborhood patrols by black men from the area. So kind of think of like a neighborhood watch, so to speak. On top of that, the Combahee River Collective, which was a small group of local black feminist a queer socialist organization that was created in 1974 to 1980. That's when they were most active, I believe. Mm -hmm. It was created by a group of eight black identified women who felt that the feminist movement was being dominated by middle-class white women and wanted to essentially formulate their own kind of politics and strategies in response of living their lives as black women, according to the New Yorker article by Gianga Yamahata Taylor. So the collective, among others, marched on April 29th as a response to the growing numbers in Roxbury and Dorchester that took place of like the, the growing murdered women in the area. Mm-hmm. So the collective also advocated for the Roxbury murders to be looked at better by Boston police and essentially acknowledged that the Boston police weren't really, weren't really doing their job. Uh, yeah, because they felt that because the women were black and ultimately because they were so marginalized, they weren't getting the same time and effort as, you know, a middle-class white woman would have gotten if that was the case. Right. Mm-hmm. So the group created writings for the community acknowledging what was going on and what black women could do to protect themselves at that time. So the writings can be perfectly summed up in the MS Magazine article by Taryn Williamson back on February 13th, 2012. And this is a direct quote. Mm -hmm. So following the march, Barbara Smith, who was a founding member of the collective and other members of the collective produced and began distributing a pamphlet entitled Six Black Women, Why Did They Die? They argued the importance of recognizing the role of sexual violence in the deaths of the murdered black women. They made it clear that it was not just race and not just gender, but race and gender that had made those women especially vulnerable, stating that what had happened in Boston as a, quote, a thread in the fabric of violence against women for the collective protecting black women meant that black men needed to collectively check their own physical, emotional, and verbal assaults on black women, particularly since it most often turns out to be black men who are the instigators of violence against black women, even in serial murder cases, which that's the end of the quote, by the way. Once again, I, I, yes, I, I, I think regardless of whether it was a black man that did it or a white man that did it or, you know, someone else completely of a different race that did it. Yes. These women were being attacked because they were not only women, but they were black women. So Mm. it's like a double, double edged sword. Yes. So in 2019, a local Boston artist by the name of Kendra Hicks created a 24-hour art installation near where Daryl's body was found called the Estuary Projects. I think the, uh, like the public notice of the art installations were happening around that point in time, but as far as I understand, Kendra, who was doing this, is kind of like a guerrilla project, Okay. Like, which means that she didn't get permission to do this, which is kind of even more of like a kick to the pants to the government because she essentially was saying... I'm not going to ask your permission to remember these women, these mm-hmm. victims. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. But essentially, I think for a time period, she had did all of these like installations to acknowledge each victim of the Roxbury murders. Okay. 
Yeah, so it started off with her getting recognized for Dariel's kind of installation, but I think as far as my understanding, she actually acknowledged all of them, which is really nice. That is good, yeah. Yeah, so she she essentially would put up the installation, usually at the site where the victim's bodies were found, and she would have these like really bright colored pom-poms all over the site, essentially, for about 24 hours, where I believe at like 9 a.m. that day, people would go and kind of have a little ceremony where people could attend, light candles, say a prayer, and sing songs for the victim, according to the Boston.com article about the piece. And it's really pretty. I'll show you pictures after we're done recording. Yeah, it sounds really nice. Yeah, so now for the whole summary of this case. We're finally... Coming to the end. We're coming to the end. And once again, if you... Not that we're happy, but... No, if you've made it this far, uh, hopefully you can do a little bit of self-care after because this is heavy. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the unsolved murders of Bobby Jean, Desiree, Dariel, uh, Darlene, Faye still remain as so. They're still mm-hmm. unsolved. Valerie could potentially be a part of that list as well. Um, ultimately, we don't really see or hear a lot of coverage on a case like this. Uh, as mentioned in the beginning, I think there were only three other podcasts that had covered this. Mm-hmm. I've literally never heard of this case before until I looked up specifically murders involving black victim. Which, and when you were like researching it, there was no information on stuff. Well, yeah. And it was very scattered. It was very just all over the place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't detailed. It wasn't our typical true crime case yeah. um, because it wasn't involving white people. Right. And because it wasn't involving white people, we don't have that much information because they weren't given the time. attention. They should have. Exactly. So there are a lot of questions from this case, but I think one that sticks out is why. Like, what, why Why did this happen? Is it because these women were black, excluding Faye? Was it because they were solely women? Was it because there may have been, like, they may have been um, lower socioeconomic status? Is it because some of them were allegedly sex workers? Is it because some of them were runaways? Because we have a huge demographic. Yes, there's similarities, but the age ranges is, is huge, mm-hmm. right? And not only that, but some of them were working, some of them were mothers, some of them were just helping out family members. It's just, there's similarities, but there's also a lot of differences too. Yeah, one thing, two things can maybe tie them together, geographic and race, and then other things just like, that person got arrested for this person might have got arrested they have no yeah. ties to any each other in that case instance exactly and regardless i i think people who were out to protect these people or should have been protecting these people didn't protect them mm-hmm. right um i know we kind of shit talk police work from time to time we're not i just want to make it clear we're not anti-police by any means i think police can do some good work when they do the work when they do the work properly and you know, we do also focus on cases that happened years ago when the conversations around like Black Lives Matter and what have you wasn't necessarily as pertinent. So we have these instances where police really just didn't seem to give a shit unless you were white and you came from money, right? So I know as a white woman, I'm only scratching the surface as to the pain and unjust that black women and black people or any marginalized persons have to experience on a daily basis. And like, I know, I know us covering this case isn't going to make things better. I know it's not going to, you know, I'm not, we're not here trying to put a bandaid over a gaping massive wound that has been caused by unfortunately white people um, and people that just don't seem to care for human life. But just trying to use our platform that we have to give a little bit more light shed on topics that should have had the light shed on them. Exactly. And I hope that there are other podcasters that listen to this episode and they decide to cover it as well, because I feel like the more we talk about it, the more we can educate ourselves about it Mm -hmm. 
and hopefully maybe at some point in this weird little lifetime we have maybe some of these cases can be re-looked at Maybe they can be looked at with a different lens, with a more just lens. Unsolved can maybe find something to close them. Exactly. You know, I think this case is just another reminder that racism, sexism, classism, it, it's not new. No. It's not, this isn't like, it's not something that just came up in 2020 or 2021. It's not something that I feel like is going to end tomorrow. But there's a clear history and history needs to be talked about to provide education to hopefully maybe someday teach people how to treat people on the same level. Like just because you are from this class or this race or you're, you know, you identify as this gender. You're a person. You're a person. Person first. Exactly. Kind of like Bob the Drag Queen, except for instead of purse first, it's person first. You know what I mean? I'm going to cite my sources, as mentioned, at the very end of this episode after our outro music. And we'll also put some charities or resources in the episode description for today's episode. If I missed anything, if I misread anything, please email us, DM us, let us know. I will try to make those corrective or corrections in, in an upcoming episode, depending on when I get them and when we're recording next. I'm not perfect. <laughs> I might have misread someone's name wrong or, you know, m- misinterpreted something. So um, because we are producing something that's hopefully educational to some folk, we also still need to be educated yes. at the end of the day. And that's my case today. It was a doozy. It was a doozy. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. Do, do you, do you want to tell these fine people where they can find us? You can, as usual, find us on many platforms, Anchor, Spotify, Apple. We would love the reviews, love some stars, but any platform you listen to podcasts on, you can find us. Feel free, as you said, to email us any suggestions of corrections we might need. We're still doing listener tales, so yes. feel free to, the more we can do, send in your stories. We can feature you on, so make sure you send those in. And that's at weirddistractionspodcastoutlook.com. Also, feel free to reach us on Twitter, Instagram. You know it says Weird Distractions Pod. Already mentioned previously, we have the Patreon. Shout out to Tom and Bailey again for that. Yes. Bless you guys. Um, go on Patreon or Tears. Lots of extra goodies on there. So feel free to look it out if you can. Support that way. And also we have some merch. You can get some goodies on pretty much anything you might like. That's yeah. all available. And that's on Redbubble. Yes. Yes. So check us out on Redbubble, Patreon. Honestly, just Google us at this point. Not saying that we're like so big that you need to Google us. I'm sure you can find something that we're on. But you can find <laughs> us on Google is what we're getting at. And if you need a distraction. We got you. Bye. bye. Don't be ashamed of me. It's Alex here. I thought I would hop on after our recording was done to kind of give a shout out to our resources for this episode. There are quite a bit, so if you want to listen, you're more than welcome to. If not, that's totally fine, but shout out to newspapers.com as well as the Yale University Press for their article, The Combahee River Collective by Adolph Reed Jr., No Date Posted. Boston.com article uh, called 11 Black Women Were Murdered in Boston 40 Years Ago. A local artist is remembering them across the city by uh, Dylan Dreyer on February 20th, 2019. The Boston Globe article 8th 
black woman is slain, strangled with cord by Douglas S. Crockett on April 28th, 1979. Another Boston Globe article. There's going to be a lot, so bear with me. Uh, Police piece together victims final hours by Fletcher Roberts on April 30th, 1979. The Boston Globe article, Woman Found Slain in Dorchester, the second second victim in two days by Gerald F. Weedman on April 29th, 1979. The Boston Globe article, Woman 23 Slain in Alston, or Alston, by Timothy, Dr- Timothy Dreyer on January 1st, 1980. The Boston Globe article, Police Check Slain Woman's Background by Fletcher Roberts on April 16th, 1979. Uh, Boston Globe article, Witness Man Seen with Victim by Joseph Harvey, July 24th, 1979. And actually another Boston Globe article by Joseph Harvey and Carmen Fields titled Brown Cleared in Stinson Murder on July 28th, 1979. Boston Globe article, Roxbury a Man Acquitted in Slaying of Nurse Aid, author unknown, May 5th, 1980. Once again, another Boston Globe article, uh, Boston Lawyers Split on Impact of Decision by Judy Foreman, July 6th, 1984. Boston Globe article, and I believe this is the last one, uh, the article was titled More Than Names, author not listed on April 1st, 1971. The Leader Telegram article, Court to Decide and Illegally Obtain Evidence Rule, author unknown, Monday, June 27th, 1983. The Say Her Name website, which I would highly recommend. Uh, the New Woman's Times article, Volume 5, Issue 13, on June... Uh, it was, I believe, published between June 22nd and July 5th on 19- in 1979. The Matt of Boston website, Black Lives Matter, Boston Racism, Cops, Feds, and Media, Part 7 of 10 by Matthew T. Connolly. MassCases.com website, the Harvard Crimson website, uh, article titled Woman March in Boston, Protest Roxbury Killings by Cheryl H. Duvall on April 20th, 1979. Uh, the Harvard Crimson website article again titled Seven Too Many with no author listed and it was published on April 17th, 1979. The Journal Dal Rena uh, World News Today website, Crimes Against Black Women, Four Cases by La Rena, uh, published on August 29th, 2007. The Justia Law website for Genius versus Pepe, uh, 986F SUP668. Uh, Justia Law website, Commonwealth versus Osborne. Justia Law website, Commonwealth. The Justia Law website again for Everard Genius Petitioner Appealant versus Peter Pepe Jr. Respondent. Uh, and that is 50F. Dot 3D60, first circa 1995. The New Yorker article, Until Black Women Are Free, None of Us Will Be Free, by Kianga Yamahata Taylor on July 20th, 2020. I apologize if I pronounced your name incorrectly. Please let me know if I did. Uh, www.dictionary.com. The Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe. The Boston Strangler, pages 57 to 60. And finally, the M. S. Magazine article, Black Herstory, Who is Killing Us by Tyrone Williamson on February 13th, 2012. And once again, guys, if I have mispronounced anything, if there is any information that you feel is incorrect or what have you, please feel free to email us at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Take care. Stay safe. Bye.